hello and greetings. This is Stuart Haynes, and welcome to the iFormRex podcast. And you may have noticed that the intro music was a bit different than our normal tune, and that's because we're hosting a podcast series in conjunction with the American College of Clinical Pharmacists Ambulatory Care Practice and Research Network, or their PRN. And this is our third podcast in this series. Today's episode is actually a continuation of a conversation that was started at the 2022 Global Conference on Clinical Pharmacy, which was held in San Francisco. And one of the presentations was entitled Under Pressure, Approaches to Applying Blood Pressure Goals with Conflicting Guidelines and Evidence. And and that particular program was very well attended and generated a lot of buzz. There were lots of questions from the audience, so many that the speakers didn't have enough time to respond to all of them. And given that this is a hot topic and there are lots of outstanding questions, the AmCare PRN invited the speakers to participate in this podcast. So I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts for today's podcast episode, Dr. Andrew Huang, Dr. Anthony Ishak, and Dr. Lolita Prasad Reddy. Dr. Huang is Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in Boston. And just down the road, Dr. Ishak is an ambulatory care clinical pharmacy specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, also in Boston. And Dr. Prashad Reddy is clinical pharmacy specialist at Rush University Medical Center in the outpatient internal medicine clinic. So Andrew, Anthony, Lolita, welcome to the iFormRex podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for having us. So I want to start our discussion today by talking about the measurement of blood pressure. There's lots of questions from the audience about home and in-office blood pressure measurements. Of course, all patients with elevated blood pressure and taking medications should be self-monitoring blood pressure at home and recording the readings. That's not really controversial. Hopefully, all of us are encouraging patients to engage in self-monitoring. But what is a bit more controversial is what readings should be used to base our clinical decisions. So let's start with in-office or clinic-based readings, which can be obtained in two different ways, using the manual osculatory method, or in other words, using a sphygmomanometer and a stethoscope or using an automated blood pressure cuff and machine. Which method do you recommend using to obtain blood pressures in your clinic and why? Yeah, that's a great question. So with the 2017 AHA uh, hypertension guidelines, they don't unfortunately recommend or have a specific recommendations. However, the automated office blood pressures machines are typically preferred due to the fact that you can avoid any clinician subjectivity with taking blood pressure readings. There's been quite a bit of data to support that automated office blood pressure readings typically are going to be a a lot more accurate. And so I think the the biggest take-home is that being able to follow proper techniques, so ensuring that patients are relaxed, sitting in the chair with their feet on the floor, with their backs unsupported for more than five minutes, um, trying to avoid caffeine, exercise, smoking, for at least 30 minutes before, ensuring that they have emptied their bladder, and then also making sure that there's avoidance of any talking during the rest period. And so one of the biggest upsides of using an automated office blood pressure is you can time some of those blood pressures to have a a built-in rest period. 
And so when I was practicing in my clinic, we usually try to provide patients a dedicated time to rest. So we, as a clinic, decided in early 2020 to actually change over to the automated oscillometric devices. We did a kind of like a cost justification to show that with improved control, it might help to justify some of our reimbursement on our quality contracts with insurers. The automated oscillometric blood pressure devices or AOBP devices were used in two of the major studies, the SPRINT and Accord study, that both informed the most recent AHA guidelines. And when you look at the accuracy of those devices, they actually will give blood pressure readings that approximately are 15 millimeters of mercury lower than your usual blood pressure checking if it's manual. And so using an AOBP device can help to reduce the risk of over-treatment and also provide more accurate readings when we're trying to follow the AHA guidelines, which is what our clinic does. We target a goal of 130 over 80. I do recognize that there is quite a bit of a time burden. It takes about nine minutes between the time period in between the different readings. So we use it basically for screen and confirm anyone who's over 140, over 90, medical assistant automatically proceeds to do the, the unwitnessed series of readings, which is also very helpful for patients who may have a white coat effect and also built in for the rest period to reduce the so-called primary care effect on blood pressure where patients are rushed in, you quickly get their vitals, and then you proceed to the visit and make a decision based on that. So for us, we do use the automated oscillometric blood pressure devices, with the exception if it's someone who has tachycardia or AFib. In that case, then we usually will do a manual blood pressure check. Tachycardia can throw off those devices in terms of accuracy or possible blood pressure readings. So our clinic recently, very, very recently changed to automatic blood pressure management. And we still do confirm with manual measurement if individuals have a blood pressure that's above their goal, and especially if individuals are in a very concerning range, so your traditional classifications of hypertensive urgency or emergency. When it's taken appropriately, we can expect that the automated reading is going to be more accurate and correlate to ABPM, determined average daytime blood pressure. And these devices overcome many of the disadvantages seen with typical office blood pressure measurement, including the digit preference, observer bias, and the white coat effect. So the JAMA meta-analysis, which demonstrated that automated readings were more accurate than manual readings, were done in patients who were sitting quietly for five minutes without a clinician present to mitigate the white coat effect. And unfortunately, oftentimes in clinic, there's a lot of logistical challenges. And unfortunately, those procedures aren't often able to be logistically implemented without really changing workflow. But I think it is important to recognize that if we don't follow those standardized measures, even an automated blood pressure under routine conditions could be significantly higher than readings taken following the recommended guidelines. So I have a follow-up question. What if a patient's home blood pressure readings are significantly different from the in-clinic readings that you've obtained, which do you use for clinical decision-making? And Anthony, let's start with you. So I think the first thing that we look at is, do they have a validated blood pressure device? And that could be done in one of two different ways. There is a website that we will use as a reference, Validate BP, which lists 
any home blood pressure machine that has been previously validated, if the patient is using a device off of that list and it's relatively new within the past year, and we verify that they're doing the proper steps in terms of rest period, proper positioning, proper timing of readings, then we will rely on their home readings because it provides more data in a more natural environment versus a couple of readings or at most four or five readings in clinic. So that's one thing. If it's on the validated list, we use that. If it's not on the validated list, we have them bring it in. And the American Medical Association, in conjunction with AHA, have put together a blood pressure device validation protocol where you do the first two readings with the patient's device in clinic, compare it against your clinic machine or device. So in our case, we use the AOP device. And then you do one more reading with a patient's device. And if the readings are within five points following that protocol, then the device is validated and you could use it for the next year. If it isn't, then you can recommend a device off of the validated list. And then from there, we make sure that they are doing the appropriate frequency of monitoring. Dr. Shimbo from one of the hospital systems in New York has worked with a group to put out a document in terms of what would be the number of readings you would need to make clinical decisions. And both in the US and Canada, they kind of use similar guidelines, which is you want to have at least three days of readings. And that entails two readings a minute apart, first thing in the morning for their meds, eating or drinking or doing anything else, with the proper rest period and positioning, and then two readings in the evening. And then you take the average of those readings and determine if you need to make a decision or not. This helps to account for the possible impact of short-acting medications and also to account for variability that may occur throughout the day. Certainly, we do like to use home readings for our clinical decision-making because it's comparable or even better than the traditional office-based measurements, and it overcomes those biases. There is also pretty clear evidence to suggest that blood pressures that are measured at home are better predictors of CV risk in patients with hypertension. But to use these readings reliably, we need to confirm that the patient has been taking their home readings as intended, confirming that the patient has a validated BP device and the steps for monitoring have been reviewed for accuracy. And when done properly, then we can rely on these readings. They're going to provide significantly more data over an extended time period versus just a couple clinic readings and have better outcome correlation as compared with traditional office measurements. We typically use a combination of both the in-clinic readings as well as home blood pressure readings in order to get a much better picture of how the, the patient's blood pressure is doing. I usually like to tell, tell the patient that when you come into clinic, it's just a snapshot of your blood pressure, but we don't know how your blood pressure is doing when they go home. And so we do encourage all patients to monitor their, their blood pressure relatively frequently, particularly when they're uh, new diagnosed hypertension or if we're th thinking of making changes to their antihypertensive medications. The biggest thing we typically have to worry about is whether they're measuring their blood pressure at home using proper techniques. And so periodically, I would reassess their accuracy and the blood pressure monitor techniques and re-educate as needed because as time goes on, patients' techniques may slip a little bit. And so re-education tends to help that. So it sounds like most of you prefer home blood pressure readings if it's a validated cuff and the patient has the appropriate technique and they're getting multiple measurements. So in those cases, when you're going to base your clinical decision 
on home readings. How do you document it in the health record and make sure that others know that those were the readings that you use to determine whether the patient was meeting their treatment goal? And I think this is particularly relevant given that other clinicians might not be using those readings to make decisions when they look at the record. And of course, all of us are being held accountable to meeting quality metrics, and the quality metrics might be pointing to things that have been entered in the medical record by the the nurse's aide or the health tech that's taken an in-clinic reading. So when we're documenting, we certainly document both our office blood pressures as well as the home readings. While I think that it's really well known that home readings tend to be more reliable than clinic office-based measurements, our own institution, our quality metrics for our providers are going to be based on the blood pressures that we obtain in clinic. There's certainly room for improvement in this, but unfortunately at our institution, the quality metrics are dependent on what is in office. Yeah, that's a tricky situation since when you're basing decisions with home blood pressure readings, that could be considered potentially subjective since we, we as the clinician hasn't actually seen the blood pressure reading. We're just relying on the patient's reporting of that blood pressure. In the clinic that I had worked in, there was a big push about correctly recording blood pressure in the EMR based on quality metrics. And so they had developed a a hypertension task force to try to educate clinicians on how to correctly record the blood pressure readings in the EMR and provided a protocol in terms of if they are utilizing patient recorded blood pressure readings from home to record that in the, in the spot that they would normally put their in, in clinic blood pressure readings in order to have that captured. And so some of it likely depends on your individual settings. And so maybe contacting your clinical coordinator or your medical director to determine what's the best practice. So unfortunately, we have a homegrown charting system, which doesn't really work well in terms of having readings communicated directly into the chart. I think the ideal system would be to have it where when a patient uses a device, they could send it in through Bluetooth or some type of device where it gets sent to the cloud and then directly into the chart. I think that would be the best way to have a valid, accurate reading is it goes directly from the device into the chart and removes the chance of human error. However, we currently at least for the next year, using our charting system as we maneuver onto a different, more widely used charting system that will probably work better. Right now with telehealth visits, it is the clinician who enters the reading into the chart. And so what we did is a couple of years ago, when we realized that this was going to be significant during the pandemic and with the quality contracts is did a lot of education to our staff, our physicians, NPs, nurses, pharmacists on recording the readings accurately, but also putting in the comments field, what was the number of readings and was it with a validated device? Sometimes they would ask the patient to do three readings during the telehealth visit, and then they would put that in the comments. Whereas others, including myself, I usually will put down X number of readings taken over X number of days equaling an average of this with a validated device, basically communicating to the other providers how many readings I used over what time period. If it was 28 readings over seven days, 12 readings over three days, to kind of then allow that other clinician to also make a judgment based on the reading they have when the patient is in front of them trying to decide, oh, you know what, I have two readings versus at this other visit, they had X number of readings. 
and and how to weigh treatings you would rely on for your decision making. Well, I know during your presentation, there was a lot of questions about 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring or ABPM. Um, first, does the use of ABPM decrease morbidity and mortality compared to using office-based blood pressure readings to make treatment decisions? I'm not aware of any studies or trials that have looked at investigation of reduction of cardiovascular disease or mortality utilizing 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring compared to routine office-based decision-making. Certainly, it's, uh, it's a, an area that probably needs quite a bit more research. There has been research to suggest that ambulatory blood pressure uh, monitoring measurements are maybe better at predicting long-term cardiovascular disease outcomes as well as a predictor for end organ damage compared to office blood pressures. However, the kind of the combination of the information that we have, that we can use with 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring could provide a bit more nuanced blood pressure reading to, to determine how their blood pressure is fluctuating throughout the day. So we know that the guidelines support ABPM use for diagnosis, but routine dose adjustments out of office Readings such as home monitoring for reliable should be considered as they tend to be the most feasible versus repeating ABPM studies. They, they can be quite cost prohibitive. You, you don't necessarily have all providers who are trained in interpreting them. And it could be an access issue because you need to have patients make multiple visits within a short time period to have the monitor placed and to return it. It does well in prediction of outcomes. It's just not ne necessarily the easiest thing to use on a real-world basis. So we tend to use ABPM in patients who may not be able to do home monitoring. So at our institution, ABPM is reserved for the hypertension clinic. So patients are only referred to the specific hypertension clinic within cardiology when there's really big concerns as far as their blood pressure or resistant to medications or there's other concomitant disease states that are complicated, the challenge is the cost and the access for us. And so while I think in a perfect world, it would be a wonderful way to really look at a patient's overall blood pressure picture and be able to make decisions based on it. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of logistical barriers and obstacles. Another person at the conference asked about when performing blood pressure monitoring, what do you recommend for patients who have very large arms, people who would narrowly require a thigh cuff if you were doing a measurement in office? So how do you manage that situation? I'm actually going to flip that question around a bit. And we, we do ABPMs quite frequently in our primary care clinic. We have a embedded hypertension clinic that's in our primary care, and we do ABPMs weekly. And one of the areas that we think is good niche for this is actually people who are on the outer ranges of the cuff measurement area. So people with really small arms, quote unquote, pediatric size cuff arms, or the extra large or thigh size cuff. It can be very difficult for them to have home blood pressure devices that will capture those readings. Those cuffs aren't generally included with the blood pressure devices. The one device that has it is over $100, which just isn't easy for access. So we actually will use ABPM for people with really small 
extra large arms, even people with what's called conico-truncal arms with that unusual shape, because the ABPM devices do come with all four size cuffs from pediatric or small, medium, large, and extra large cuffs, and they're kind of cloth type, so they are flexible around the arm, and you can actually get a tighter seal versus home blood pressure device cuffs. So certainly this is another area where we struggle because unlike a lot of primary care clinics, as I had mentioned, we don't have ABPM monitoring embedded into our primary care clinics. So for our patients, when there is a concern and we need somebody to do ambulatory monitoring at home who are larger or smaller, we do recommend using a validated wrist cuff. And in those cases, we will actually ask the patient to bring in that wrist cuff and we will calibrate it. I unfortunately don't have a lot of experience utilizing ambulatory blood pressure monitoring devices in the extreme sizes of the arm cuffs. But typically in in the clinic that I had worked in, we would generally recommend the patient try to attain a larger cuff if possible. And if that's not possible, recommending the use of a validated wrist cuff. However, kind of acknowledging that these can be a little tricky in the sense that they can be relatively sensitive to, to arm position and incorrect techniques can give quite varying blood pressure readings, even in the same sitting. And so education and counseling is quite important. Well, here's another great question. For patients with comorbidities, such as diabetes, prior ASCBD cardiovascular events, or chronic kidney disease, where do you put your focus? Is your focus on achieving a specific target blood pressure, or is your focus on ensuring that patients are taking medications with a proven cardiovascular and mortality benefit? So where's your emphasis? On lowering that blood pressure to a target? or making sure they're on meds that have been shown to improve cardiovascular morbidity and mortality? So I certainly think it's important to optimize medication therapy from all directions. I think that this is an area where the sum of the individual parts is greater than the whole, and the concomitant presence of all of these disease states complicates management of the others, but also increases overall CVD risk. So I try not to look at it in a bubble, and I look at it more as an individualized, prioritized approach where I have to get that patient to goal, but I also don't want to focus on surrogate markers. I want to look at what medications can I provide the patient that is going to provide that CV clinical outcome reduction. So I try to hit it from all angles and patient partnership and establishing a close relationship with your patient so that they can recognize that this is more of a journey. That's a great question. It's quite an interesting dilemma. Ideally, you, you'd want to focus on both, both lowering blood pressure to goal as well as maximizing medications with proven cardiovascular risk reduction. Understandably, there's not a lot of studies that have looked at this kind of question, whether Focusing on cardiovascular risk reduction using proven medications compared to attaining blood pressure goal, I tend to try to focus on maximizing medications with proven cardiovascular risk reduction. So I think with diabetes, it, it's a different treatment approach, right? There are agents that, independent of A1C lowering effect, have these strong benefits for cardiovascular outcomes. With hypertension, we tend to follow the ACCHA guidelines and basically use 
any of the agents from the big four, ACE, ARBs, thiazide diuretics, and calcium channel blockers, we use any agent that is within those categories for the patient, depending on their specific characteristics and that could work within their lifestyle and other comorbidities. So I think for hypertension, we just basically use one of the agents from the first line category, whereas with diabetes, I do think it gets murkier in terms of what what are you trying to target first? Do you first get them on a GLP-1 if it's needed or an SGLT-2? Or do you first reduce their blood glucose because that's the needed target more urgently? So I think the approach is different between the two disease states and certainly you account more for the shared decision-making that occurs with a patient in terms of what they want to address at that moment at that visit. We had another question, which is about when selecting agents, what is your thought process in terms of administration time? So specifically, can you address the conflicting data there is about bedtime administration? So this is a really interesting question that has been discussed more so in in the past year. So last year, a study came out called the TIME study, which basically supports dosing medications at any time of the day as long as you account for patient-related factors. This was kind of what we expected, which is that if you're choosing medications with 24-hour duration, you, you should be able to keep it under control, particularly the morning blood pressure surge. Prior to that, there was some debate as to whether we should be dosing in the evening because there was an ABPM study out of Europe a few years ago that seemed to provide evidence for nighttime medication dosing. However, it was retracted shortly thereafter with concerns in terms of the protocol and and how the data was analyzed. So at this point in time, we basically work with a patient to find the ideal time for their adherence and to be able to take the medication and try and opt for agents that are 24-hour acting in duration versus medications that need BID dosing and might expose patients to blood pressure liability and potentially vulnerable for things such as a morning blood pressure surge. So this is definitely an area where there's been and there continues to be a lot of discourse. And while the generalization that all patients should take at least one medication for blood pressure at nighttime has been refuted, there are still some considerations that we really have to think about. So the time trial last year did demonstrate that there were no differences in composite CV outcomes when a patient was taking a medication in the morning versus the evening. But one factor we have to consider is adherence to therapy, which can be limited by several factors, including the timing of other medications, adverse drug events, and the optimal dosing timing of, and choosing the optimal dosing timing of antihypertensives can overcome some of this. I think it is interesting to note that in the time trial, there was more non-adherence to taking medications in the evening versus the morning, which could have an impact the results of some of these studies. I think it's also something that we have to think about is the diurnal variability that most patients present with, where the blood pressure does dip into the nighttime. There are subsets of patients who are known as, quote, non-dippers, and these individuals have greater end organ damage because they don't tend to have that dip over nighttime. And in those patients, we really do maybe need to consider the nighttime medication. Many studies, most of the studies, including the time trial, really didn't take, they didn't look at patients who were dippers versus non-dippers. So this is where ambulatory blood pressure monitoring 
can really play a role where we can identify those patients that don't have a dip overnight, those individuals that stay elevated overnight, and then taking a medication at nighttime in that subset of patients. Yeah, with a lot of the controversy surrounding this administration time at bedtime. So in 2010, the MAPEX study found that bedtime treatment lowered cardiovascular risk by roughly 67% compared to morning treatment. And then followed up with the Hygieia chronotherapies trial in 2020, which was a much larger trial, but they also found very consistent results with significant reductions with a hazard ratio of 0.55. However, since those studies have been published, there has been some concerns about the methodology as well as kind of the unexplained large effect size seen when you compare it against other traditional blood pressure lowering trials compared to placebo. So there's been a lot of question marks. And then with last year, with the, the time trial being released, sort of seemed to refute a lot of the the findings of those two first trials, and they found that there was no significant differences in primary cardiovascular disease outcomes when you administer antihypertensive medications at nighttime compared to daytime administration. There seemed to be some lower prevalence of side effects in the bedtime dosing group. And so the focus currently is to base administration timing on patient preference and, and sort of talking with the patient about when are they most likely to remember to take their medications. So maximizing adherence as well as tolerability of the drugs. And so when do they have some of those side effects and try to minimize that based on playing around with the the timing of the administration? Well, I want to thank you all, Anthony, Andrew, Lolita. This has been terrific. Thanks for joining us today for the podcast, for your invaluable insights about this. I've learned a lot today. If you are not already a member of the ACCP Ambulatory Care PRN, I encourage you to join with an active listserv. They've got frequent CE programs, roundtable events, plus tons of ambulatory care resources that you can download from the ACCP website. Really, membership in ACCP and the ACCP Ambulatory Care PRN is a terrific value for anyone who practices in AmCare. There are also several opportunities through the PRN to get grants, sponsorships, awards, Really lots of networking opportunities for students and residents, as well as pharmacists and and faculty. So consider joining ACCP Ambulatory Care PRN. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. (laughs) 